NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Podcast. The podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not they should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're talking about former catcher Charlie Bennett and whether or not he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And joining us in just a moment to discuss Bennett's career and Hall of Fame candidacy is friend of the pod and owner of the Twitter handle Cooperstown Dave, Dave Metter. Before we bring Dave on, let's talk a little more about Charlie Bennett. Because I don't think many of you probably know who Charlie Bennett was because Charlie Bennett played back in the 1800s. Charlie Bennett's career ranged from 1878 to 1893. Charlie Bennett was born seven years before the Civil War started. He was born 1854. That is how long ago Charlie Bennett played. Charlie Bennett played for teams like the Milwaukee Grays, the Worcester Ruby Legs, the Detroit Wolverines, the Boston Bean Eaters, teams that do not exist today, teams that I could not tell you for the life of me what their uniform colors were, uh, their mascots. I mean, some of them, these are pretty fun. A Bean Eater, I like that in Boston. But long story short, Charlie Bennett played a very long time ago. Um, he was really baseball's first true catcher. He was credited with inventing the first chest protector worn by catchers um, because they were not wearing chest protectors when Charlie Bennett came into to baseball. So again, that's how long back we're going here. He was on the 1936 ballot, which was the very first ballot since the Hall of Fame opened uh, back in 1936. And he was considered a vet. On, he was on the veterans ballot back in 1936 because he had retired, you know, back in the 1800s here. But he didn't get in then. And he is, again, not in the Hall of Fame today. And it's up for the Classic Baseball Air Committee to vote him in. Um, which will have a vote for the class of 2025. So not this year, but next year. And that committee looks at any player that played really from 1980 um, back to when baseball started. So we are going uh, like 100 years plus of baseball there. So that committee has a tall task. But anyway, Charlie Bennett is the topic today. Um, For his career, he had 38.8 career war. He had 978 career hits, 203 doubles, 67 triples, 55 home runs, 533 RBIs, a 256 batting average with a 119 OPS plus. He also won the championship in 1887. So those offensive stats seem very weak. Um, but if you look at when he played, he was actually kind like, considered a power hitter. Those home run numbers, 55 home runs in the 1800s was, was quite a lot of power. Um, behind him and that 119 OPS plus was you know that's not bad at all for for a catcher and he also didn't play very long in, in Major League Baseball and again Dave and I are going to get into all of like how like putting his numbers in context of all of that so take that with a grain of salt but defense was Charlie Bennett's uh, calling card he led the National League uh, catchers in fielding percentage seven different times he led National League catchers in range factor per game um, three different times at catcher and he led the NL in defensive war out of any position in 1886 um, at catcher, which is pretty impressive. He led any, every position at war that year. He was top 10 in the NL 10 different times in defensive war. And his 17.5 defensive war is still to this day, you know, well over 100 years later, still good for 78th all-time in MLB history across all positions and 10th all-time among catchers. 
so again, a defensive starlet who also had some pop in his bat, but played well over 100 years ago. So um, I had a lot of fun with this. I learned a ton. Um, I'm not going to lie, and I say this pretty early in the podcast. I don't know too much uh, about you know pre-1900s baseball. I know the top players, um, Buck Ewings of the world, Cap Anson's, King Kelly's, those guys. Um, I'm, I'm aware, you know, I did a, I've done a, a few episodes of players early in baseball, but it's definitely not my like specialty by any means. Uh, but, but my guest today it is, you know, he really knows this era well, and I learned a ton. So if you're like, uh, Charlie Bennett, do I want to spend the next, you know, hour or so listening to a player I've never heard of? If you like baseball, you like history, it's a great lesson just to even learn more about what the game was like early on. But you also learn about a player who has an extremely great Hall of Fame case. Uh, so I hope you take the chance to, to take a listen and hopefully learn something. If not, you know, we, we have more episodes coming down the pipeline. It is baseball um, Hall of Fame season. The ballots are now out. Um, so So we're doing this podcast. We have a Hall of Fame book club next week because I think it's a great stocking stuffer. I want to get that out of the way. And then after that, it's going to be straight baseball for a while, 2024 Hall of Fame candidates. So a lot of baseball coming your way. We got Charlie Bennett today. We got Pot of Fame Book Club next week. And then we're going to have all 2024 baseball Hall of Fame candidates for the foreseeable future as we really dive into that season. So a lot of baseball coming up. Um, also, I want to apologize. I meant to do Hall of Fame Market Watch last Friday. I should have known post-Thanksgiving the last thing I was going to want to do is record a pod when I was in a food coma. I was also kind of sick, so I gave myself a pass. So I apologize. There was no uh, Pot of Fame Market Watch last week or Hall of Fame Market Watch last week. There will be one this week. Um, so I do apologize for that. But again, we have a great episode for you today. Charlie Bennett's going to kick off a ton of baseball coming up. Um, so with the quick facts out of the way, let's bring on Dave. All right. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Dave Metter. Dave, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Dave, you are, um, you're making history on the pod today. Um, That's what we, I are, do. we are talking about a player um, who was born before the Civil War started. Um, for for those of you out there not history buffs, Civil War started 1861. Um, our topic today is former catcher Charlie Bennett, who was born in 1854 um, and passed away in 1927. He passed away in the winter of 1927. That was the year Babe Ruth actually went and hit 60 home runs. So he passed away the year Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. That is how far back we're going. Um, and Charlie Bennett played in, in Major League Baseball from 1878 through 1893. So he didn't even peak into the 20th century. Um, obviously, he has been out of baseball for quite some time. Um, it will be up to the Contemporary Baseball Air Baseball Committee to vote him in, which votes on... Um, I believe anyone prior to 1980. Um, so over a hundred years of baseball there, um, quite a bit of baseball there. 
And I think you and I, Dave, can talk about that in a bit on how, you know, that could be a, a, disadvantage, a disadvantage for him because that's a lot of baseball to cover. Um, and the next time that will be voted on, uh, I believe, is the class of 2026. So there is a few years in between uh, then and now. Uh, but that is who our topic is today. Um, Dave, there's a lot we want to cover today, so we're just going to jump into this. My first question I ask any guest on this show about any player that we're talking about is, you know, what comes to mind? So when Charlie Bennett comes up in conversation or you're reading about him or someone asks you about him, I guess, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Because again, mine is we're talking pre-Civil War players, but I think something maybe a little different can come to your mind. So Dave, for you, what comes to mind with Charlie Bennett? What comes to mind for me is that Charlie Bennett is by far the best career catcher of the 1800s or the first 30 to 40 years of Major League Baseball. He's third all-time among catchers in fielding runs and had a career OPS plus of 119. To try to contextualize that in a more contemporary sense, because we are talking a long time ago, I want to make some references that listeners are familiar with. Imagine if Yadier Molina had the bat of Jorge Posada or Mickey Tettleton. So power on base and exceptional defense. Catcher, I think everyone agrees, is a super important position. Playing it is very hard. Playing it in the era Bennett did was brutal. Much harder and like more demanding physically than one could imagine nowadays. And in my opinion, there aren't any true career catchers in the hall until arguably Roger Bresnahan, who played 67% of his career games at catcher, but only eight games before 1901. So there are zero players in the Hall of Fame who played at least half their games at catcher from the 19th century. Zero. Yet, just for uh, some representation reference, there are four relief pitchers in the Hall who played in 1996, and we're probably getting a fifth soon. But a few things to consider here. We all know that catcher's super unique, and playing it for half your career and then, say, moving to first base or DH, there's a huge difference there. And then if we're, if we're going to then refer to that person as a catcher, it's not like going from left field to right field. I'd argue that the delta there between catcher and other spots in that era of the 1800s is even greater. The mound was closer. The protective equipment for catchers was non-existent or minimal. And the damage that catchers took in their hands from catching, they had little gloves. They didn't have anything like a mitt until after Bennett's career, really. Um, it was crazy. There's photos, there's drawings. I'll tell a story later. So they had to do that while throwing the ball a lot in a very high stolen base era, as well as hold a bat and swing it. So just to get it out of the way, there are three people that sometimes are just called catchers in the Hall of Fame from this era. Deacon White, he caught 28.8% of his career games. At, um, he caught 28.8% career of his games. Um, he was really more, I would say, a third baseman. I think 28.8%, we can all say, you know, put him aside. King Kelly, these are all great players, worthy Hall of Famers. Kelly caught 40% of his career games. And this notion that playing catcher was particularly brutal compared to other spots is something Kelly himself would acknowledge. Kelly once said, 
quote, if he had such battered hands as Charlie Bennett, he wouldn't catch a game of ball for a whole church full of millionaires with their entire wealth stuffed in their pockets. And when Kelly did catch, one reporter said, quote, he stands half bent and seems to be laboring under the most painful sensation of nervous expectation until the ball is pitched. In other words, catching was like scary. It was rebellious. It was, you know, I think we all know that it takes a certain steeliness to do it. Back then, it was exponentially more daunting. The other player, the one who people most often will say is 19th century Hall of Fame catcher, Buck Ewing. Ewing caught a little under 49% of his games. That's significant. That's great. Charlie caught 90% of his career games. And given, again, the toll it takes, I just don't see that as like a career catcher. It's almost like Yadier Molina, again. I'm going to reference him probably a lot. He caught well over 90% of the games he played in. Joe Maurer, who I'd vote for, great player. He caught 49%, really similar to Ewing. But would you really compare them apples to apples if, to, to make a, a silly what if? Imagine you're transported 100 years into the future. You're told there's a 30-year period of baseball, and there's one catcher in the Hall of Fame, and it's Joe Maurer, and he like represents catchers. I think you'd probably be like, at least I would, uh, he's awesome, but I don't know if I like, he, he didn't catch enough. That wasn't like his whole career. Um, so I think that's part of the basis of the argument is sort of catch at least 50% of your career. I think that's a really low bar. Um, and that Charlie, as we'll go on to talk about more, was easily the best of his time. Yeah. When I was, so I'm not going to lie, uh, Dave, you, you came to me and were like, can we talk about Charlie Bennett? And I feel like I am someone that knows a lot about baseball history. Um, it's a long history, but I feel like I'm a guy who knows a lot about baseball history. But 19th century history, um, going back that far, that's where I start to, to you know, fade a little bit. And I do know players like you brought up, the Buck Ewings, the King Kellys. Those are the names I was familiar with. And before I really started diving into Bennett, um, I, I did think of those guys who were like, yeah, those were the catchers. They, they, people talked about them as the greatest catchers of the 19th century. Um, but as you just explained, the, the games played, uh, especially like King Kelly and Deacon White, where it's 40% under. I mean, again, Ewing's close to the Maurer line, which I'm glad you brought Maurer because that's someone that came to mind here too when I was thinking of those guys. Like, I do think of Maurer as a catcher, but... I think his case, which is up this year, actually, so it's very topical. I think a lot of people have a problem with just looking at him as a catcher because he only did play about just about half of his career there where he DH'd the rest because catching is so hard. And as you said, catching was even harder back then. But what I found impressive was not just against those guys, but even the other catcher of his day, like when, when Bennett started his career in Major League Baseball, the record for most games caught a season was 63 games by Bennett's third season in 1881. He had caught 70 games. And again, that record, when he joined baseball, it was 63 games. Most, most games caught. He would end up crossing that 63 game threshold, I guess, meeting or crossing it nine different times in his career. So again, people were not catching at that volume due to you described earlier, the brutality, I think of the position we, we talk about how hard, hard it is now. Back then it was, sounds like a million times harder than that. 
So he not only passed it his third year in, but he consistently kind of set the standard for how much someone should be catching. And even his peers still around the time seemed to not be doing it. And to have 90% of your career as a catcher, I mean, back then's unheard of, but today it's today it's pretty, pretty unheard of. I don't I don't know Molina off the top of my head. I know you brought him up earlier. I I I mean, I assume I assume he DH later in his career, but I assume his catching probably is above 90%. But I think if you look at most catchers today and moving forward, it's probably going to get less and less that just because again, that wear and tear your body, you have to convert to either DH or, you know, as a backup catcher, just because your your knees start to give out. Yeah. And just for reference sake, um, when you, whatever that number was about how many games he caught per season, it's important to note that through Bennett's career, seasons were depending on the year, like 80 games long, like somewhere between 80 and 130 games long. So that 70 number or whatever it was that you said, um, that context is also important. It's all these contexts that make his case harder for people to wrap their brains around because we know what we're most familiar with. We're most familiar with our current time period. Um, he also, he held that the record for most career games caught till 1897, most putouts by a catcher till 1901, catcher double plays till 1900, a lot of things. And when it comes to like, who would the other guys have been? Because if I'm putting aside Ewing and whoever, looking at just people who caught at least 700 games in the 19th century, there's a list of like eight people. I'm not going to go through them all, but I can tell you I'm looking at the numbers. Most of them are either very good defenders, terrible hitters, or kind of the opposite, or kind of mediocre in both. Again, like the defense of Charlie was is statistically bears out, it bears out anecdotally from looking up newspaper accounts. But he also had a 119 OPS plus. His nickname, even if you look at his power numbers in modern eyes, it doesn't really stand out. But he was Home Run Charlie was his nickname. And he got a lot of extra base hits. And again, with hands that must have been mangled, which is why you could understand why a lot of the catchers couldn't hit. So two things before we move on. One. As I was saying the Yadier Molina stuff, I was like, Cardinals fans are going to kill me on this. So just so everyone knows, I, I Molina played 48 games at first base, one game randomly at third base, and he DH five times. Every other game he played, 2,184 of them, he played at catcher. So obviously his rate is up there. That was a bad example, but Molina is, again, one, I mean, when you think of catchers of the, of the recent times it's it's Molina that's who you're thinking of but again I'm thinking more like the Mowers of the world that are converting to DH now that DH is in both leagues too I think we're going to see this more and more moving forward so that's the one I want to correct myself there um just because saying Molina's around the 90 percent is is ludicrous it's it's well over that. It's 99 percent um and then the second point I want to make is you brought up that Bennett you know we're going to talk about his defense a lot because I think that's his calling card but offensively in his time period he was still one of the better offensive threats out there and I want to save that for court but I do have some of the numbers here and how he compared to his contemporaries during the entire 19th century if we compare everyone during that kind of 30-year span from the 1870s through you know 1900 he fared pretty well but I do want to save that so Dave let's go to our next segment here Um, we call this that memorable moment 
And for any new time listeners that, you know, are, maybe you're a new time listener because you're like, hey, Jim's finally talking about, you know, 19th century baseball. Here we go. Um, what we do here is we're going to take a look at Bennett's career and we can either pick out a single game, a playoff series, a stretch of time in a season, even an entire season if we want and say, hey, this is their most memorable moment. This is Bennett's most memorable moment. So obviously, Dave, you and I weren't around for his career. Our parents weren't, our grandparents weren't, our great-grandparents weren't. I think we have to go back three grades probably to have maybe someone there. And I know all my family was overseas at that point. So I know no one from my extended family ever saw Bennett play. But if we had to go back and say this was Bennett's most memorable moment, what would you say it was? So exactly. It's hard. I can't, like if we're talking Carlton Fisk, <laughs> I can't just say he waved the home run in the <laughs> World Series. Um but my answer would be, although there's a, a bunch of things I could cite, I feel like I'd be remiss because I just want to get out of the way. One of the most famous things about Charlie is sadly how his career ended, which was he slipped, mm. a train ran over his legs. It led to the amputation of his, uh, I think, left foot and then his right leg right above his knee. Um, but I'm going to go positive instead and reference the 1887 World Series. Um, it wasn't called the World Series at the time, but it was that. It was his... National League champion Detroit Wolverines against the American Association champion St. Louis Browns. It was a best of 15 series. So first to win eight games. Again, I know that might sound odd to current years, but it, it happened. And it was a legitimate series between the two pennant winners. Detroit won in 11 games, eight to three. St. Louis, that team stole 581 bases that season. That's the most stolen bases by any team in MLB history to this day. And they did it in a 138-game season. That comes out to stealing 4.21 bases per game. So as you might guess where I'm going with this is Charlie's defensive impact, although there's a bunch to this, was huge. But I picked this for one thing. He was very productive offensively. He had the game-winning RBIs in two of the eight wins. He stole five bases. He led his team in RBI. Sam Thompson, who was on his team, Hall of Famer, he slug, He hit like 391. He was the superior hitter. But Charlie managed to slow down this St. Louis's superpower. Again, in this period, home runs, that wasn't, you, know, you didn't have like the 2023 Phillies where you slug your way to a win. This team won a ton of games because they'd hit singles, get walks, get on base, steal a bag, and get driven in. Um, but not only did Charlie slow that down entering the series he was injured and then he gets a injury during the series so it, it's honestly like makes jordan's flu game or Schilling's bloody sock seem like child's play but um entering the series dan uh, dan bruthers who was detroit's power hitter he's a hall of famer he's seventh mm. in first base jaws just to give some context to his greatness he was out he hurt his ankle Again, to try to like, uh, you know, make a modern example. Imagine if early two thousands Cardinals teams enter the World Series and Albert Pujols is out. So, and Detroit's pitching wasn't like exceptional. Like most, you're, if you look them up, you might not know any of the pitchers' names. Um, but entering the series, it was even unclear if Charlie would play. Detroit fans were nervous. Um, according to one account, uh, a physician. This is a quote. A physician pronounced the verdict that if Bennett caught another game, 
His thumb would be in danger of amputation, but Bennett brought himself up to the point where he felt he had to work in the first game of the series, even if he lost a hand in the game. Now, I'm going to step back and point out that maybe there's a little bit of myth-making, but I'm sure the reality of him being very injured and beaten up is real. But this series goes on, game-winning RBI single in Game 2. Game 3, this is one an example where clearly his defense comes into play. St. Louis had 13 hits and 3 walks, yet they scored 1 run and stole 1 base. I highly doubt that the most prolific base-stealing team of all time had a lot of games with 13 hits and 3 walks and only stole 1 base. Detroit won that game 2-1, to one, so very significant. Fast forward to Game 6. This is where things get even more heightened. For one thing, Charlie catches a game in which his battery mate, pitcher, Pretzel Guitens. Um, yeah, Pretzel Guitens and Lady Baldwin. I was, Dave, I was going to say, I'm looking at the box score now. I was like, we got to talk about this guy named Pretzel. So well, I'm glad I can, you brought I can him explain up. that. Pretzel, Pretzel gets seen. That's how you say it, gets seen. Pretzel gets seen and Lady Baldwin were the front ends, the front starters. Pretzel got his name most likely because he had pitches that kind of like weaved and bobbed like a pretzel. Okay. Um, and Lady Baldwin got his name because he was like very sober, didn't drink, mm. was that kind of guy. But um, Pretzels <laughs> um, threw a two-hit gem in which he was throwing a no-hitter through eight and two-thirds in this game. But And Charlie ended up going one for three in the game, two runs scored, a couple walks, and three stolen bases. But in the second inning, um, his finger got hit by a foul ball while he was playing defense. It was gushing blood. There was a few minutes of delay. Um, but Charlie stayed in the game and ended up catching that game and had all that offensive production. The New York Times said this, quote, It did not seem anything unusual to Bennett or to his fingers. When he held up that battered right hand with its fingers swollen, with rags tied around them, and a general appearance of having been run over by a freight car. It did not seem as though there was room to split it in any new place. He went right on with his play. Though the blood was reddening his hand and could be seen now and then to drip from his fingers, Bennett wears a look of patient suffering. His hands suffered so much that they have probably become case-hardened and ceased to feel. So he stayed in the game with that. They basically just doused some rags with antiseptic. That's his PED. And... He's holding runners on, throwing the ball, and holding a bat and swinging. Um, and there's multiple... This is game six. It goes 11 games. He's got more games to play. Game seven happens. Um, again, they win. St. Louis gets seven hits and two walks, yet zero steals. At this point, there's accounts from the Browns players. They're kind of losing their mind. They're like, we're not playing our game, is like one of the things that I, I read, which probably means they're base stealing. Um, game eight. He, again, he's got this terrible hand, but he went two for five with a triple, a run scored, and an RBI. Game nine was his other game-winning RBI. By games 10 and 11, he didn't catch the full game. He played some first base as well. But in game 11, he had a two-run single, a walk, and two stolen bases. Detroit clinches. So my contention is in a way that um, he'd have been sort of like a World Series MVP candidate, if not the MVP, if not for Thompson's hitting. And that's also borne out through when Detroit, the team, returned to Detroit, there was a big fanfare, a big event at the park. A couple of players were given, like, awards for the end of the season. 
but it culminated with Charlie getting what was described as the most handsome gift of all, a wheelbarrow with 531 silver dollars in it, which Charlie then pushed around the diamond, much to the cheers of the crowd. Um, between that, his hitting, other guys hit better, but he had timely hits, and he did it with these hands. Like, could I, It's hard to even imagine the scale of the narrative and the story that would go on if this happened in current times. And to quantify, this is my last area here, to quantify the impact he had defensively. In the nine games that he caught all of, St. Louis scored 2.2 runs per game, down from 8.1 in the regular season. That's a 73% decrease. They went from stealing 4.2 bases per game to 1.4, a 67% decrease. And that's only with having about 23% fewer base runners per game, because they did have fewer base runners, which of course, you're not going to steal as much. Mm-hmm. But um, also the Browns players outright said it. Um, one Browns player said, quote, what hurt the Browns chances of success was Bennett's great throwing to the bases. There, were, I've got like five quotes here. I won't read them all as much as I want to, but all these things that Detroit won the series and mainly through Charlie Bennett's ability to stop the great base stealing bunch. Um, so that's what I would say is the most memorable moment and might be a big reason why fast forward a few years after his career ends, the Tigers build a new ballpark. They name it Bennett Field or Bennett Park at the behest of what uh, the fans wrote into the newspapers asking for. It's the only instance where a major league ballpark was named for a player who wasn't the owner like Comiskey or Mac. Sure. And and speaking of Comiskey, Charlie Comiskey was on the St. Louis Browns in that series as I'm looking through the other players here. Pretzels also, I was looking to him a little bit while you were talking. He was born in Germany. So I don't know if that had to do with the Pretzels name as well, but um I guess my question to you, David, you kind of met, you kind of answered it in there maybe a little bit, but like I'm looking at this series right. Obviously, you just told the stories like his defense made a, a, a big, you know, difference in this series. Um, Detroit outstole St. Louis 42 to 28 uh, across the series. And um, Bennett actually had five of those steals himself. Bennett also led the team in RBIs with nine, despite having like 20 fewer at bats than some of the the top guys. So I'll interject so between, real quick. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, because, and this is one of the challenges. Sure. There's some differences in the details of the numbers. Um, like the game accounts I had had Charlie with 10 RBI, but more importantly huh? than that is you're probably looking at baseball reference. I am. Baseball reference is data. Remember at the top, I mentioned this was a best of 15 series. Yes. So it went 11 games and that's when Detroit clinched. This is again, one of these things that, you have to look at the details of this time period or else you sure. wouldn't think of it. The games 12 through 15 actually happened. They just weren't part of whether one team won the series or not. But given there's owners of the team, they they made deals with ballparks to host these games. Those games occurred as exhibition games. Charlie didn't play in any of them. A lot of the other players did, including Dan Bruthers. Um, and those numbers are within the stats that baseball reference shows and baseball reference to this point doesn't have individual game data for uh, the 1800s really. So Got it. his numbers, this is just another weird thing where like, if you yeah. look at his series on that page, his numbers are, you know, not going to look as great compared to the others in the team. So I guess my question to you, Dave, is if they were giving out MVP trophies back then, obviously I can see here, you know, how, and you, and you mentioned as well, right? How good of a series Sam Thompson had. 
but with the defense and again he hit very well in that who who would you like if we were looking back right and just giving out mvps before they were given out do you think it would go to charlie bennett here or do you think it would have gone to thompson or someone else pretzels i don't know so pretzels i ended up breaking down because i needed to know from uh <laughs> like just the 11 games um that were part of the non-exhibition games sure pretzels ended up with a an era over four so he did mm. he had that one amazing game that was almost a no-hitter lady okay. baldwin put up a 1.3 era over three games Ooh. i would say thompson of course he hit 391 he had two homers um he he super out hit it, but I would think truly if it was in this day and age, um, when you look at world series MVPs, mm-hmm. a lot of times there will be guys who hit better over the series, but some guys had a clutch hit or the narrative goes their way. And I'm pretty certain given everything I've read, reading old newspapers and accounts that Charlie would have been that guy. And I also think that him getting the 531 silver dollars in a wheelbarrow <laughs> maybe is further evidence of, you know what? He was the captain. He was the guy who willed his team with battered hands. After he then further injured his hand in game six, the rest of the games in which he caught fully, they went 4-0, and and the Browns had 33 base runners and stole three bases out of those three, 33 base runners. I'm pretty sure that would be the narrative. Um, credit to Sam Thompson and others that hit, but... I, I, but you know, I'm a little biased here. I'm a Charlie guy, but I think Charlie. I mean, I think, I think a wheelbarrow full of half dollars is, is definitely the MVP trophy of the 19th century. I mean, right. I, I don't know how else you could look at that. I wish that's how they, they made the trophy today, just in the shape of a wheelbarrow and gave that out. Um, that's a great, you just kind of blew my brain in terms of many things you just said throughout there, but, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to look into more about, I, I honestly, one of my biggest takeaways is there is a man named pretzels. And I think that's one of my favorite things. When I look back at 19th century baseball, you look at any kind of box score from a game and there's going to be a couple names out there that, that really stand out. Um, but no, that series itself, I think that has to be. And again, even though, as you said, they played these extra games later on, even though the series was over, I know no one could imagine that happening today. Obviously, it happened back then, but it really does seem like he was the difference maker. And and maybe if you put a replacement catcher in there, just someone else, they're not winning that series because, again, they're getting run on and all that stuff. So it does seem like he made a a huge impact in there. Um, And whether he's the MVP or not, he was a top player on that team. I think that's a surefire, most memorable moment. Dave, I do want to move on to our next segment, though. We call this and twins. And what we do here is we look at Cooperstown today. We look at all the players in it and whether it be the way they played the game, whether it be from a statistical standpoint, it could be a nice combination of both, but if I made you pick out a twin in Cooperstown today for Bennett, who would it be? I feel like this is where I could get yelled at by some people on Twitter. This is tough. The way I see it, I need to pick a catcher who is sort of within conservatively the top 10 defensively ever, huh. but also a very good batter, which kind of breaks it down to like Pudge Rodriguez, Johnny Bench, Carter, or Fisk. Like those are the names um, that I see. 
The only catchers with a 110 OPS plus and 15 defensive war are Carter, Bench, Fisk, and Bennett. Wow, um, that's a great that's a great little category there. Oh, I've got a ton it's of a those, great little yeah. grouping there. Yeah, I said that fast and I flubbed it. I'm going to say it again: 110 OPS plus, 15 defensive war. Carter, Bench, Fisk, Bennett. Um, I feel like you can't say Bench because that you're not allowed or something. But like, I, I'm going to go with Gary Carter. Um, Bennett's third in fielding runs. Carter's sixth. Bennett had a 119 OPS plus. Carter's at 115. They're both very beloved. They're both very much leaders of postseason winners. Um, and again, there's a lot of these stats where there's a handful of players, but Bennett and Carter are there. Fangraphs has a stat, defensive runs above average. And for the 120-year period of 1871 to 1990, uh, Charlie's fourth behind Brett, I mean, Brett Boone, Bob Boone, Jim Sundberg, and Gary Carter. And I'm sure listeners may know, of those guys, Boone and Sundberg, great defensively, not the greatest offensive threats, but Carter and Charlie are. Um, there's only, there's just so many stats where it's just sort of, if you want to th- believe in the stats, and also, again, I know when people get doubtful of that, um, there's another angle to that, which is, I would ask anyone who doubts defensive war, by the way, to just quickly kind of look up like who are the leaders in defensive or fielding runs at different positions? And just tell me, mm-hmm. do you think that that smells right? Like right field, it's Clemente. Third base, Brooks Robinson. Second base, Mazeroski. Andrew Jones at center. Ozzy at short. So I buy into it. And Carter's, I'm so curious who you're going to say though. So I'll just stop there. <laughs> so no, um, I, I I was looking like, so I, you, you were more adventurous than me because you made that grouping, and as you kind of did a caveat at the beginning, right? You're like, I know people like are gonna kill me, or or you know, you can't me- like. I get that because like people like Bench and Carter, you know, those are when people are talking about catcher Rushmore, they say to have you know those guys are who they mention, and now we're talking about someone who's you know not only in the not in the Hall of Fame, but you know has been retired for well over a hundred years. And is not in. How can we compare them? However, your defensive war and, and the OPS stat, I, I love that. And if you have more of those down the line, please keep throwing them out. I actually went back and was trying to look more closer to contemporaries, not contemporaries, but people that played before I was around, my parents were around, my grandparents were really around. I guess my grandpa could have seen this this player play and might have, I might have to ask him at Thanksgiving next week, but I try to go back in time a bit. Um, and I went with Rick Farrell. Um, you know, Rick, Rick Farrell is someone who I think of when I think of a, a defensive catcher from way back when, and again, Farrell played from, you know, the really played in the thirties and forties here. So we're not going back as far back as Bennett, but still this is way out of, I could have seen this guy play, but you know, if I look at Farrell's Cooperstown plaque, you know, it, it immediately goes to defense, really. He caught more games than any other American leaguer. Durable, defensive standout with fine arm. Expert at handling pitchers. And I guess he had a bunch of knuckleballers in the Senators, so he had to deal with them. So, like, that's what they're talking about. At the end of it, he was the second only to, to Dickey in AL career putouts at retirement. So, Farrell's all based around his defense. 
And if you look at him offensively, yes, like that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. Offensively, he had a 95 career OPS plus. Charlie Bennett, a, a 119. Um, you know, he was a 281 hitter, but he had no power. He had 28 home runs for his career. You know, Bennett basically doubles him with 55 home runs, even though he played in about 800 less games. Charlie Bennett's war's much better. His overall war, his defensive war is much better. Um, this is one of those instances where I, I look at this, Dave, and I go, Rick Farrell's in, in the Hall of Fame, and he's been in for quite a while. He retired back in 1947. Um, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame when? In 1984. So he was by a veterans committee, but he was elected, you know, 40, 40 years ago here. Charlie Bennett, if I'm going head to head here, you know, the whole thing about Rick Farrell, he caught all these games. Well, when Charlie Bennett played and he retired, he had caught all these games. He was the first to really do it. If you look at their numbers, not even just like, oh, his air, his air, like Charlie Bennett's home runs where you weren't hitting home runs back then still double Rick Farrell. His OPS is well above Rick Farrell. It's just, I guess, Dave, like, why is, why is Rick Farrell in the Hall of Fame? And we're not, and this pod's not about taking people out, but Farrell's in by a veterans committee. Bennett obviously is out. What What is happening here, do you think? What, why, why would that be? Because if we're just looking at numbers, which when you're talking about players this long ago now, you kind of have to because not too many people are around anymore that saw him play. What's happening here? Rick Farrell's in. Charlie Bennett's not. Charlie Bennett's numbers across the board, advanced metrics and kind of raw stats and his place in baseball, they seem like they kind of had a similar thing, defensive catchers. What, what's going on here? What do you think? I think that, respectfully, you're shortchanging Charlie Bennett. But mm. what, what's going on? I mean, for one thing, what's interesting about Farrell is he's a very great defender. His yeah. his advanced stats um, aren't as just like superlative. Um but yeah, to me, uh, Charlie outdoes him on both sides of the ball. But when it comes to just like, why isn't Charlie in and why are these others? Um, for one thing, we have to consider, um, I think everybody listening would agree, this podcast exists in part for this, which is sometimes the voters just don't really get it all that right, if there is a right, whether by including players who shouldn't be in and omitting ones that should. Um, but for one thing, think about the beginning of the Hall of Fame. There's an incredible backlog to the point that Cy Young isn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. Then eventually, they start the what's called the Old Timers Committee. And that was largely like uh, the impetus for that was largely because they were struggling to induct players via BBWAA. Um, and they really wanted this committee to vote in people who at least played like most of their career in the 20th century. They weren't really looking to have people as long ago as Charlie. They also really were keen on people who also managed because it, this is another thing about the early hall of fame days, which I tweet about a lot, um, which is that uh, a candidate's meant to be assessed through their overall contributions, not just player or manager or umpire. And so they really wanted to see players inducted who managed, even if it wasn't that successfully or for that long. So in the first old-timers committee class, there were 10 people elected. Seven or eight of them also managed. Um, so that's part of it. 
Another part is the Detroit Wolverines were where he had his peak. That's a defunct franchise. He then played for the Boston Bean Eaters, which are part of the Atlanta Braves uh, franchise. But, you know, Boston and Atlanta are pretty far away. So, like, he, he built some amount of fame and love in a city that isn't where the team is. But numbers weren't that available for voters. Um, the numbers that were his batting average and hits total would be below what anybody would have been looking for. Um, but you also just have to see, like, again, like this sort of a, this committee for a long time was mainly trying to elect people who most of their career was in the 1900s. So there's only one 19th century third baseman in the hall, Deacon White. He got elected in 2013. There's only one second baseman from the 1800s like players who didn't play significantly into the 1900s. And that's Bid McPhee. He wasn't elected till 2000. Billy Hamilton's the only center fielder. He hit 344, but wasn't elected till 1961. Even several 300-win pitchers. John Clarkson, 328 wins. He was elected in 1963. Pud Galvin, 365 wins, elected in 1965. There's others. Uh, Mickey Welch won 307 games. He wasn't elected till 1973. 1973 is 80 years after Charlie last played. So obviously one of the challenges is also when the voters never saw you play and you don't have the obvious round big numbers, which he didn't have because of the position he played. And he was a very defensive-centric candidate. But so to Rick Farrell, my point is, he played well into the 20th century. So... If the Hall of Fame started earlier, I think Charlie's in, but that's a major part in why Charlie's not in. So this is a good segue into court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! So court, uh, again, for any new time listeners that are drawn to now us talking 19th century baseball here, all we do here is what Dave and I have been doing throughout this podcast so far. You know, we talk about some of the pros uh, for the case uh, for Charlie and then, you know, some of the cons. And we we just kind of started encroaching on some of this, I think, um, just now. But we're talking about the, the voting and, and something that was curious to me when I was looking into Charlie Bennett was, again, the Hall of Fame, of course, their first class is 1936. And there's kind of like, who the baseball voters are running in. And I think everyone, most of my listeners probably know that first class, you know, is Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Lawrence Wagner, Christy Matheson, Walter Johnston all got in. And then the backlog, I mean, as you said, Cy Young, Roger, like some of the all-time greats have to wait a couple of years. It's just how it worked. There's a backlog, 1936. It just started then. But there's a veterans committee that year too. Um, and it's interesting because some of the, you know, I don't know how they were... <laughs> And maybe if you have, uh, you could share lenses, Dave, if you know, but like some of the quote unquote, like people that had recently retired, they're on both of these ballots. Like there's a, there's a veterans committee back then, as well as like a, with who the baseball voters were voting on. Some people are on both, which I think kind of messes up their total. Like Cy Young on the veterans committee got 41%, but in the main segment, he got 49%. So maybe people didn't know who to vote for or where or whatever. Regardless, most of the people on these eventually get in, especially anyone that got like 20% or more of the vote gets in. But anyway, Charlie Bennett's strictly on the Veterans Committee. He retired in the, the 19th century. And I was looking and, you know, he got, 
he got 3.8% of the vote in 1936. So he gets three votes that year. And you might be like, well, that's not very good. Um, But what's interesting, right? If I look at who got 3.8% of the votes or even less, there's there's a number of Hall of Famers here. There's there's Kid Nichols, who's who I can't believe he only got three point percent. He he has three hundred sixty two career wins. Uh, players like John Ward, Billy Hamilton's a big name I was very aware of. He only got two point six percent of the vote that year. Um, Dan Brothers got two point six percent of the vote that year. Someone I've actually done a podcast on, Bill Dalen, who's still not in the Hall of Fame, only got one vote. So Charlie Bennett again got two more votes than him. And there's a bunch of people like Bobby Wallace only got a vote. Deacon White, who's in now, only got a vote. Tim Keith. So long story short, yes, Charlie Bennett only got three votes. But a number of people that got three votes or less that year ended up in the Hall of Fame. And what you were just talking about, Dave, was kind of, well, you know, 19th century is not that well represented. Um, These people played a long time ago. They were never, you know, really looked at again because no one had seen him play. Yet, again, I see a number of people here in the same kind of boat as Charlie. But, you know, they eventually did get in. And I guess my question, you kind of answered, Dave, but I just want to kind of do it here just from this lens. Like, some of these players did play a very long time ago, but they ended up getting in. Charlie Bennett, still on the outside looking in, I don't think is talked about that much and maybe... I think he should be. Is it just because he was a catcher? Is it just because it's more defense than offense for him? Is it because his war maybe isn't as high as some of these other players just because he didn't have that long of a career because he was catching? What about him is holding him back more than maybe some of these other players that played so very long ago? I think it was a lot of those things you just said. Um I think it needs to be understood how chaotic the early days of the Baseball Hall of Fame was. And by days, I mean years. I think a book, I just looked it up, I think A Great Day in Cooperstown was a book that I read that shared some of this. It was chaos. 1936, that first class, there were certain people voting that they thought, oh, I'm just supposed to pick, and I'm, I need to pick one person from every position, and I'm putting together like an all-star team. Um, yeah. It was not very understood. And so, yeah, he got votes for the Veterans Committee in 1936. 1937, there wasn't really that. There was the Centennial Committee, which was tasked a little differently. They really, they elected just pioneers and managers. And then the next year, there was, again, just the Centennial Committee, which elected two people who helped create the game. Um, So all these delays towards even him getting another real chance um, but I think if if this is court and we're kind of talking about the the negatives, um, he has under a thousand hits. That looks brutal. But again, you need to look at the the context for all of that. Um, his batting average is about like Harmon Killebrew, though Harmon Killebrew's in the Hall of Fame. Um, and again, there's also the fact that like some of these numbers, um are just a very different era. His OPS is 0.728. Of course, they didn't think about that in the 1930s, but league average OPS was 0.644, which is like lower than you'd think of now. So a batting average of 256 for his career, um, not great, 
but the league average during his career was 254, and he's a catcher, and he's playing excellent defense. There's just all these layers of intellectual requirement to consume his candidacy. There wasn't, we didn't have baseball reference in the 40s. And when I say we, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing. Um, So there's just a lot of challenges with, there's also the fact that like, I forget if it was on the Dolan episode, I think you mentioned, you go to his page, you don't see a whole bunch of cool badges at the top, right? Like you see for players. It's not Charlie Bennett's fault there weren't all-star games and gold gloves and MVP opportunities. But when you go to his page, you don't see those things. Um, I would love to turn to saying the positive parts of court, but that's what I would say in terms of his challenges. Um, But again, if you look at catchers of the first 30 to 40 years, he's clearly the best. And I don't know, to me, that's important. Or as uh, Jay Jaffe, who writes a lot about the Hall of Fame, he recently said, a hall without representation of an era's best becomes weaker as an institution. I don't think if we're talking about catchers, we're talking about pinch runners. Catchers are pretty integral. So this is me saying his challenges while leaking in some arguments for him. Well, Dave, I appreciate that. And something I do on this pod a lot, and I'm really glad you just said that. Something I do on this pod a lot, right? I have this methodology and I use it across all sports. And I always say, you know, if you were top five at your position during when you played, um, not that you should be in the Hall of Fame, but I, I think you should be right in the conversation of it. And you're pretty much making the case that if we're really just talking about catchers, not only when he played, but just in the entire, you know, 19th century, Bennett was the best catcher. And, you know, my methodology is just being the top five kind of while you play, we're talking almost a 30-year time span here, beginning of baseball, and he's not just top five, but the the best if you're talking about some of the actors playing the catcher position each and every day. And I think that speaks volumes. And I don't know if you've done this, but I feel like, Dave, if anyone's done this, it's you. You've taught, and I almost started to do this too, but then I was like, I don't I don't know like I I feel uncomfortable doing this but I want to know if you've done this so you mentioned he has a lack of badges at the top right if there was all-star games if there was gold gloves Dave have you done the homework of how many seasons he should have won a gold glove if they were giving him out or how many seasons do you think he was you know the first or second best catcher in the NL that season, do you have a rough estimate of how many gold gloves or all-star teams he would have made? Because I started to kind of do it and I was getting in like the seven to eight gold gloves, eight to nine all-star appearances. But then I started to get uncomfortable with like, I don't know this air enough to really properly do this. Have you done that homework? And if not, I might ask you to do it and get back to me because I need to know, I think now. I have not, I think, because um, the, there's so many instances of those awards being handed out where we disagree with the outcome. Sure. But I can say, and this is another instance of people are quick to doubt defensive war and fielding runs, um, even though the th- the traditional stats are what feed into them in large part. And if you believe in the traditional stats, you should believe in just, or you shouldn't, maybe should is wrong, but... Um, they're they're just contextualized 
within these sabermetric stats. And I can tell you that um, the number of catchers to lead their league in fielding percentage more than Charlie Bennett is less than one. It is, in fact, zero. He led his league in fielding percentage seven times. No catcher has done that before. Uh, the only ones to do it six times are Josh Gibson, Gabby Hartnett, who's a Hall of Famer, so is Gibson, and yep. Jim Sundberg. Um, and I, I, so I don't have an answer for that, but I've got a lot of other stuff. Like this one I only found last week, which blew my mind, which is um, the only Hall of Fame eligible players with a higher war per 162 mm. who were not in the Hall and played at least 15 seasons are Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, and Charlie Bennett. That's the end of the list now. That's a crazy list. I, I think listeners know those other three names. There's a few things you could say differ between Charlie Bennett and them. And one of them is, again, I think that antiseptic cloth is the only PED he used. And that's a gaudy list. But to all, to further uh, go off of your question, this doesn't break it down season by season. But for 19th century catchers, Charlie ranks first in baseball reference war, first in fan graphs war, first in offensive war, first in defensive war, batting runs, fielding runs, home runs, and walks. He's second in doubles. He's third in triples, fourth in hits, RBI, runs, and total bases. Um, so how that breaks down to individual years and all-star appearances or whatnot, that's a bit tough. He's also got, relative to his career, a slew of four war seasons, which when you take that, baseball reference says, like, if you've had a five-war season, think of that as sort of like an all-star season. Mm -hmm. I think even in modern day, Scale that down to more like four when it comes to a catcher. Sure. Then you think about the shorter seasons, Charlie. Yeah, you really got to bring that down. And it's remarkable. I, I've got so much info, I can't pull the number out, but he had a handful of four war seasons. Um, the There's also a matter of like how many great years does this is a constant debate. Does a player need to have to be a Hall of Famer? And I think we understand catchers that maybe should be a lower number. Um, but over his first 10 seasons, he had, oh, I wish I had the number at hand, but over a 130 OPS plus and 12 defensive war. The only players to have a 130 OPS plus and 12 defensive war in their first 10 seasons are Mike Schmidt, Barry Bonds, Mookie Betts, and Charlie Bennett. Um, I've got too much of this, um, but I, we're going to talk about my Twitter account at Cooperstown Dave, but you, you don't have to follow me. Go to hashtag Charlie, the number four HOF. And I just blast this stuff out at least once a week. And there's so much more. Uh, this is a stone cold hall of famer. In my view, if you were just, if you agree, which I don't think anyone disagrees with, you look at players with era. And I think 30 years is more than an era and position. And he's easily the best of his time. And to go in the defense a little more, and then I have a question for you here that might be tough, but I do this stuff on my pile all the time, so I'm going to ask you. So just his defense, because um, that really is what catches my eye. And again, his offense in terms of, again, his time period, he was a very good offensive catcher. Definitely in terms of like slugging, hitting home runs, all that good stuff, doubles. Um, but again, the, the defensive stuff pops off. And my war, I, I go off baseball reference all the time, but you know, he was top 10 in the NL 10 different seasons in overall defensive war across all positions. 
His 17.5 defensive war is still the 78th highest in MLB history across all positions, 10th highest among catchers in MLB history, again, despite only playing just about 1,000 games. So take that into account. Um, all the guys ahead of him played about double the amount of games he played. Uh, so in, in defensive war at catcher. Uh, Yadi Molina, who I think all of us think of as one of the best defensive catchers of all time. He's not in the Hall of Fame yet. He's not up for the Hall of Fame yet. I think his candidacy, I'm interested to see how his first year on the vote does. Because again, he's someone who's very defensive oriented, doesn't really have the great offensive stats. Um, Molina has 28 defensive war in 2,224 games. Again, Bennett has 17.6 in 1,062 I just want to put in context, I think Bennett is, if you look at his time period, definitely the best defensive catcher and definitely the catcher catching the most games. But I guess my question to you, and I don't know if this is fair, Dave, and, and you let me know. You you look at 19th century baseball more than me, but like, I'm a big Rushmore guy. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm always throwing out Rushmores. I'm going to do one when this episode goes about Charlie Bennett. But if we're talking about defensive baseball Rushmore for catchers, you got four faces on there. One, I want you to build it for me, but the bigger thing is, is Charlie Bennett on that Rushmore? He's on mine. Um, I I don't see a way around it. Again, um, I think a big rub for people is or will be, if they're new to Charlie Bennett, is the, the sabermetric stats. Um, but there's so much I can promise listeners and if you go to the hashtag charlie4hof you'll see it spit out a lot the contemporaneous accounts and accounts when he retired of that he was quote king of the backstops and things like that are endless so to me when it comes to looking at players from very long ago trying to make sense of their stats when anecdotally it's very much backed up i feel uh, more assured of it. Just like when I was growing up, Scott Rowland was playing on my Phillies, and I was like, that seems like the best third baseman yeah. I've ever seen defensively. And the numbers, you know, for my lifetime, more or less bear it out. But my Rushmore, um, defensively, uh, Yachty, Pudge Rodriguez, Charlie Bennett, and then, I don't know, the last one's a little tough. Um I don't know if it's like Ray Shalk or somebody. Uh, I don't know. I, I usually don't think in those terms, but here's the thing. Even if you don't, he doesn't make someone's Rushmore. I, I see this guy, especially when you look at the fact that he had a 119 OPS plus. Um, and you, if you just look at his numbers of like per 162, because again, the season lengths, everything's confuses everybody. This seems like somebody who could sniff close to the 10th best catcher of all time. In my view, like this seems like somebody significant enough for the Hall of Fame, since that's really my point here. I'm circling back to that, but I've got three names. The fourth is tough. Okay. I'm not going to make you, you, I just want to know if Charlie Bennett was on it. So if you don't have a fourth, you're good. Charlie Bennett is one of your four. That's all I was kind of looking for there. Again, though, you think about, and many of the tales about him talk about like, the damage his hands took. Oh it's yeah. Unbelievable imagining. I mean, people think guys were throwing 50 miles an hour. They weren't. 
part of Charlie's career, pitchers threw underhand, but they threw hard. Um, again, there's reason why a lot of other players didn't do it, or if they did catch as much as him, they couldn't hit. That he could hit or had the wherewithal to draw walks um, is remarkable. Yeah. It's not an accident that this dude had a major league ballpark named after him. So the other thing that comes up always is, well, if he was so great, why is he in? But again, anyone who's thinking that right now, I guarantee there are names in your head where you're like, that person should be in. Why aren't they in? And I know they should be in. So voters aren't always right. No, they're definitely not always right, which is why we have this show. Um, all right. I was going to ask you a dumb question, but I'm just going to go to final verdict because it was Aww. really silly. Are you on the dumb question? Yeah. So, so you want to hear that? Okay. So from that air, right? Like Buck Ewing's in the Hall of Fame. King Kelly's in the Hall of Fame. Deacon White. All guys that played under 50% catcher. I'm not going to lie, Dave. Charlie Bennett's not the most exciting name. You know, it's not pretzels. Buck Ewing, good name. King Kelly, nice name. Deacon White. Nice. Charlie Bennett sounds like a guy that could be born today. I don't know if anyone's, you know, going to be named Buck Ewing today or King Kelly. If if Charlie Bennett had a more unique name, do you think that would have helped his case at all? And I'm being kind of serious. It's a dumb question, but if his name was Pretzels Bennett, do we just, is it more like off the tip of your tongue? You're just like, that's an interesting guy. I'm going to look into more. Is Charlie Bennett such a generic name that it just didn't get anyone excited? It's just, that guy could play any sport. I could play basketball. I could play football. I don't know. Well, Buck yeah, Ewing, I, that's a baseball name. Pretzels is a baseball name. I, I, It's a silly question I was thinking of throughout this. But I was like, if Charlie Bent's name was just a little more unique, would we have more fun talking about him? Is Would he get brought up more? I know it's silly, but sometimes a name to me can stand out more. And, and I, I dive into that. I want to know more about Pretzels immediately. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't click on Charlie's name on a link if I didn't know anything about him. This just sounds like somebody who spends their days in marketing. Um, but uh, look, Cannonball Titcomb and Icebox Chamberlain aren't in the Hall of Fame. I think Charlie Bennett's a nice, snappy name. Um, he's Home Run Charlie, um, Home run which Charlie, is also like fun. Yes, he isn't in a, a poem like Tinkered Evers to Chance. Um, I think another thing, again, when you look at that old-time uh, committee and they focused more on guys who played more in the 1900s and also managed. Charlie lost his legs. He didn't go on to manage or be an executive. He ended up going on to paint fine China, which is also interesting given his damaged hands. And he was like a great artist um, and he owned a cigar shop. But um, I think that the name probably wouldn't have done it. I think that when people see the 256 batting average and the under 1,000 hits that's tough I think it's a shame there's a season he played during the early part of his career where he played in a league that that year isn't considered the major leagues but the next year is and if his hits from that Mm -hmm. season existed he'd be over a thousand hits which at least is like a nice psychological difference Um, but uh, no yeah I think that given that um oyster burns is an in that might not have made a difference though there's i i know someone who's really into noodles han so what that's worth all right let's go to final verdict here dave so i i know your answers well i know one of your answers i don't know your other answer but um i'm gonna ask you two questions and then i'm gonna answer the same myself and then we're gonna get you out of here 
Uh, my first question is, you know, do you think Charlie Bennett belongs in Cooperstown? Do you think he is a, a Hall of Famer? And then my second question to you is, do you think Charlie Bennett will get into Cooperstown in the next 50 years? Uh, I think he should be in the Hall. I would totally put him in. Whether he'll be in in the next 50 years, I would say probably not. I think that there's a number of reasons why, which we've touched on. Um, I think his best hopes are um, more buy-in into the advanced analytics. I think that if there was ever again a sort of uh, like a first 50 years of baseball or something sort of committee that that would help him. I think this all categories pre-1980 ballot is brutal. And I think many of us agree that the Negro Leagues are missing a bunch of excellent players. I really think the list of players pre-World War II or so that should be in, for me, isn't that long. But a huge percentage of them are Negro Leaguers. So just the way the committees are set up, he's only going to get a shot once every few years. It's a competitive ballot. For him to even get on the ballot is a high hurdle. Um, But again, like I said, Jay Jaffe said, a hall without representation of an era's best becomes weaker as an institution. Uh, Everybody usually likes to champion the catcher. There's a lot of people. I think for anybody who's a Yachty or Molina voter, it makes no sense to not be a Charlie Bennett voter. I think when you think about that leader of a team, that's what Charlie was also in that hard to measure way everyone wants to say oh yeah yes this is the best and i'd vote for him yes the numbers don't exactly show it though charlie's that though the numbers also show it but yeah i don't i'm not so confident that he's getting in but i'm gonna keep talking about him so for me i i I do think he he's in as well um I, i will say dave he was not my radar before you brought him to my attention which could be a huge problem here when it comes to the voters. Uh, again, I don't think he's someone that, um, you know, most most people I know that follow baseball that are just more casual fans um, is going to come in conversation. I don't know if maybe if I lived in Detroit, uh, he would be. Because, again, we talk about old-time baseball players in Chicago all the time. We our, our baseball teams have been here for a very long time. But Bennett was never really coming across, you know, my my t- my table here um but if you look at the defensive numbers i mean you can't you can't not see them i mean against his contemporaries he was far and beyond everyone else if you compare him even by today's standards um not by feeling percentage or errors or anything like that but just by defensive war and things like that he grades out extremely well and then his, his hitting i think if you latch onto like a batting average sure but like his ops plus was great and and where he ranked among catchers when he played um you know he's at the top of the list across all the key categories you like like walks and home runs and doubles and things like that so like the offense is there the defense is way there and then just the fact that you're like we're talking like the catchers representing the hall of fame today from the 19th century didn't even play catcher half of their careers so the fact that there's no pure catcher from the first 30 or so years of baseball seems really wrong. It, it, it just seems off. Um, so not even just being a pioneer. Like he's a pioneer. He's got the numbers. Um, yes, he didn't have the longest career. But again, compared to his contemporaries, that, that was the kind of games they were playing. So um, I do think he should be in. Do I think he'll get in the next 50 years? I, I, I don't. 
Um, I mean, to the point of, I don't know how much he's talked about in the fact that the heirs committees now, at least how they're built. Um, I mean, it's unfair, but there's over a hundred years of baseball. And, and I misspoke earlier. It was the, it's the classic uh, committee that that's, it's the pre 1980s. But I mean, anyone that played before 1980, we're, we're grouping. I mean, we're grouping like Rod, Roger Maris with him and, and they weren't, I don't know if Roger Maris was born by the time he, I mean, I think he had passed before Maris was even born. I mean, it's just such a wide range. I think people will gravitate to right after World War II to, you know, the early 1980s, not let's go back to 1880. Um, So unless a special committee in the next 50 years is created, which could happen, right? Of, hey, let's look again at 19th century baseball. I, I don't think he's, I don't think he's getting it. Yeah, and I think like Bill Dolan, he has a gaudier war. But again, and I, there's a way to break it down. But ultimately, it's like Charlie's war, which is something like 38. He's 26th, I think, or 25th in catcher jaws, which neither of them sound that exemplary. But again, relative to how many games he played, and you look at anyone else from his time period, these are huge numbers. When you 38 wars a catcher, you have to really context matters. Johnny Bench leads all catchers in war, and his totals, I think, in the mid-70s, and there's only a, a small handful, maybe four guys over 60. So you can't think in terms of like, Bonds has 162. You know, like, sure. catchers very different. And just, I think the amount of intellectual effort required, I'm not trying to, you know, make me sound smart, but it's just, it's asking a lot of the average voter and people to care enough to look at, and I think there are other higher priorities to people and it's unfortunate because I just I'd rather see him just get in and I'm available to give the speech if anyone wants to ask. Well, um, Dave, I mean, he he's waited long enough. I, I don't think, you know, another 50 like within the next 50 years, it, it could happen. And again, um, it will be up to the classic baseball air committee. Again, I misspoke earlier there. Um, I think I might have said the contemporary. That is definitely not true. That contemporary is more now, but um, they will be up to vote um, down the line. And again, with Charlie Bennett's naming on the list, I, I think it's all about right diving deep into this stuff. Again, I didn't know much about him before before you brought him up to me. Um, and I think if you dig into the numbers, which the voters should be doing, and I know a lot of them do care a lot about baseball and baseball history, and you know maybe the voters are a lot more well versed with Charlie Bennett than than I am, and that that could be a case. But it is, to me, as we look at it, as we talk about it, I don't think it's very far-fetched. It's not a far-fetched discussion that he's a Hall of Famer. Um, yet, obviously, he retired you know, well over 100 years ago, and, and he is still not in today. So there's reasons he's out. Um, I can see some of them, right, that the game's played, things like that. And I think it's more, though, just as we've talked about, it's just 19th century players. Um, we're we're just not going to be talking about them as much. They they feel like they are they are whoever's in is in now, and there's no reason to go back and look. And unless that attitude changes, he will be on the outside looking in. And again, that class classic baseball air will vote for the class of 2025, I believe. Um, so that'll be not next year, but the oh, I'm sorry, it'll be the next year, not this year, but the next year. 
Um, so Dave, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, I learned a ton. Um, I hope my audience did as well. Um, before I get you out here, anything you want to plug? Uh, I have a Twitter account at, at Cooperstown Dave. Um, you can find me there. And uh, whether you find me there or not, you can just check out hashtag Charlie, the number four HOF. Uh, I have a scheduled Charlie tweet for every Thursday from now until end times. Um, but I also just find things along the way and I have to just get it out to people. And um, that's all I have to plug. But I'll just close with this quote from an 1894 Boston Globe article. Quote, he was unquestionably the greatest backstop the game ever produced, taking his throwing and batting into consideration. 1894, Major League Baseball starts in 1871. I would say that's a pretty significant period of time. And I think that's a good way to end this podcast. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And again, if Charlie Bennett gets in in our lifetimes, we're, we're bringing you back on here if we're still doing this just to celebrate. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me and for taking a chance on Charlie. I, I hope listeners uh, can appreciate uh, this more challenging candidacy. Um, but um, anyone can reach out if they want. And uh, thanks again, Jim. All right, Dave, take care. All right, I want to thank Dave again for coming on the podcast, talk about Charlie Bennett. That is all we have for you today. So if you don't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Pod of Fame. If you've done all that, you've done your homework. We will be with back with you on Friday for a Hall of Fame Market Watch. So have a great week, and we will talk to you on Friday. Take care.